Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, August 9th. Whose responsibility is it to address Canada's housing crisis, the federal or provincial government? And how can all levels of government work together to tackle the issue? We discuss with Carolyn Weitzman, housing policy expert and professor from the University of Ottawa. We hear it all the time. Farmers need more rain, but just how bad is it for Southern Alberta farmers this crop season? We get the thoughts of Bassano area farmer Daryl Lassiter. Why is Canada fighting with Meta over Canadian news coverage? And could we, as a nation, negotiate a deal with the tech giant like Australia did? We tackled the topic with Michael Geist, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law from the University of Ottawa. How can we best address the housing crisis in Canada and where does the buck stop? Joining us to discuss the issues is Carolyn Weitzman, a housing policy expert and professor from the University of Ottawa. Good morning to you, Carolyn. Hi, Andy. Well, our conversation, obviously housing very much in focus for, I think, all Canadians at this point, but more so when we had some comments from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, the statement on housing not not being uh, a federal issue per se. Uh, so what, what do you say to that? Well, I mean, if it's not, if, if the number one issue facing Canadians is not a federal responsibility, then uh, we've got a problem here. Uh, Canada has signed on to a whole bunch of international covenants on basic human rights. Uh, and it's also passed a National Housing Strategy Act that says pretty clearly that um, it's uh, the federal government's responsibility not only to do everything possible at the federal level, but also to lead strategy at the provincial, territorial, municipal level. Well, can you provide some insights for us, Carolyn, on the uh, incorporation of the right to housing into Canadian law and implications surrounding that? Well, I'm not a lawyer, but I can say that the federal government has a lot of levers that other levels of government simply don't. So, for instance, it's a really good move that housing has moved into infrastructure now because it is critical social infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And like any other bit of infrastructure, like hospitals or like bridges and roads, it takes a lot of money. And the federal government gets the most revenue um, and has the most powers and with that revenue and power comes responsibility. So first of all, there's the question of um, social housing or non-market housing, which has essentially been neglected by the federal government since the early 1990s and the provinces and municipalities simply have not either have not been able to or have not chosen to take and uh, to to keep up the level that was happening between the 1960s and the 1980s and that means that homelessness has grown um, a second aspect of federal policy is taxation right now there's a multi-trillion dollar tax exemption for principal residences in Canada and that's helped um, increase housing being used as an investment strategy towards retirement rather than a place to live and that's part of the reason why Canada has some of the highest house prices in the world. A third lever that the federal government has and it's really important is um, immigration. So at the moment there are a lot of temporary visas being granted for students but there's virtually no housing 
affordable housing being produced for either international or local students. And that's one factor in almost zero um, vacancy rates for low-cost housing. So all of those levers are federal. They aren't provincial with the partial exception of Quebec and immigration. And, you know, it's only the federal government that can do that. Very interesting. When we talk about that, I, I know that housing is an issue here, but obviously we're not the only nation on the face of the earth facing issues. Can, can we look at other nations who have had success when it comes to housing, making it affordable, making sure that the citizens have roofs over their heads? Can we look at other countries? Oh, absolutely. So I'll give a couple of examples. Finland has actually ended chronic homelessness, long-term people living on the street, and it's done that through a combination of um, a housing first strategy that's created a lot of uh, low cost supportive housing for people who have mental health or um, uh, um, other forms of disability. Um, Another hallmark of Finland, just to give that one example, is that every year they're able to relatively accurately track how many people are homeless, and that's not happening in Canada yet. So sort of the the first step would be accurately measuring and being able to see whether the strategies that are happening are working. So the federal government right now has um, uh, $89 billion over a decade invested in a national housing strategy. And it's really important to know whether that is working to reach the people who need housing the most. And all the evidence, and there's been about six federal reports just in the last year, show that that isn't happening. So if we're discussing changes and success toward housing Canadians starting at the federal level, and you can imagine, you know, the everyday citizen, whether or not myself or my neighbours having problems with with housing, there are certainly more than a few out there having issues. Can, Can we do anything, average citizens, to move this forward? Oh, absolutely. So one of the ways that a lot of people are getting involved is through trying to get more well-located housing, particularly multifamily housing. And that's that's a climate change issue, as well as an adequate housing initiative. So they're joining local groups that are sometimes called EMB, that's in my backyard, mm-hmm. or they're um, involving themselves with the uh, local alliance to end homelessness, very active in Calgary, or a national alliance to end homelessness. Um, those are all great ways to get engaged and to expect more from politicians. Very interesting and uh, super timely. Thanks for your time this morning, Carolyn. We appreciate it. No problem, Andy. That is Carolyn Weitzman, housing policy expert and professor from the University of Ottawa. It, yes, as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's a hot topic, but it's become a hot potato among the different levels of government. It, it's, it's, it's not our problem, says JT and company sitting in, in Ottawa. Well, the provincial government needs needs some help doing what they're doing. We talk time and time again, not just with Mayor Jody Gondek, but also with, you know, the Calgary Chamber about how tough it is in our city. We do what we can here, absolutely. And then you look at, you know, these home builders, for example, they want to make a dollar. Uh, they're in business, and as a result of being in business, they want to move, uh, move the needle forward when it comes to if they have shareholders, great, if it's a big company. If not, just, just as the business owners. So, so you want to make that buck, and I get it. But you know, when people don't have a roof on their head over their head, it, it's a it's a tough 
a, a tough road to travel down. And, and at the same time, you wonder, you know, these interest rates, we're hearing that the next one that could be weeks away from now, I believe it's in the uh, what, first week of September, if I'm, the, if I'm uh, correct here, could see another bump in the interest rate. I know people personally whose mortgages, for example, were unvariable. And then, uh, you know, the unthinkable happened post-pandemic with these rates going sky high. Uh, no longer. Good luck finding a rate under 3%. You're looking at between, you know, maybe uh, 5.9 if you're lucky to up to 7%. Interest rates are out of control here. And uh, people I know have uh, mortgage uh, mortgages who have gone up $1,100 a month. Where do you find that money, for example? And that's not... You know, somebody who, who can't find a place to rent or can't even get into the market. These are people who've owned their homes for years, and uh, this change has come their way. So it's a serious issue. Farmers in southern Alberta are suffering through a lack of rain, and crop yields will be low because of it. Joining us now is a dryland farmer from the Bassano area, just east of Calgary, Daryl Lassiter. Good morning to you, Daryl. Good morning. Uh, first of all, I'm unfamiliar with the term can you tell us what a dry land farmer is how do you define that well essentially it means that uh everything that we grow we rely on the rainfall uh irrigation is completely different uh they they apply water for the moisture and we rely on mother nature all right so let's talk about this season you've had uh, can you talk about the rainfall totals you've had so far this year uh we're we're in an area that uh, is not as bad as others. Uh, some it, it's, it varies. You go a few miles and it changes. My farm is sitting in a pocket that this year we're sitting at about 30 to 40% of our normal, mm. um, which is around three to four inches is what I've received. There's an, you know, 10 miles south of me, they've literally received less than an inch. Wow. It's quite substantial. Incredible. So so did you notice, is, is rainfall beginning worse over the past handful of years? Can you quantify that? Uh, yeah, I would, we, weather is a cyclical thing. Uh, we've, we've witnessed uh, the last three years have been quite a bit drier than normal. Um, Drought is a, is also what you receive moisture-wise in the winter time. Mm-hmm. So our snowfalls, our snowpack, if you will, has been less than normal. Uh, without getting into too many details, that snow is hugely important because it runs off in the springtime in the in the melt and uh, puts water in our dugouts for our cattle. Uh, gives us subsoil moisture underneath, so when you do go through a dry spell, the roots can still get down into the moisture. We haven't had that for a few years. Uh, there's been other dry spells, if you will. Uh, it, it seems like, to me personally, that ocean tides have something to do with it, too. Every time we're in a La Nina or El Nino, the two different types of tides in the ocean, it can can really make a difference on our weather out here in the prairies. Speaking with Bassano area dryland farmer Daryl Lassiter, let's talk about your harvest. When will you harvest this year and what kind of yield are you expecting because of these conditions? Well, we're right on the cusp of our of starting our harvest. We're getting machinery ready. There's some neighbors that are just kind of starting. I've heard some numbers about some guys uh, 
it's pretty low. Uh, like I said, if we're if we're only receiving thirty to forty percent of our normal precipitation, you can correlate that to your crop. Uh, if you're relying on that for your rainfall, you're look you're looking at thirty to forty percent of your yield. So thirty for thirty to forty percent of your income. <laughs> wow, incredible! I, I understand that. And again, I'm outside this world, but from what I hear. Even if your crops are a total bust, in order to get crop insurance, you still have to harvest. Can you tell us about that process and, you know, how that feels, having to go through that process, even even though you're, you know, going to be so low on the totem pole when it comes to your harvest this year? Well, the, the crop insurance, uh, thank goodness we have it to start with because our input costs are incredibly high. So insurance allows you to keep going. You don't make money on insurance, but you survive for the next year, so to speak. Crop insurance is, uh, it never pays 100%. So you you have to, you get a a, uh, crop insurance program and you get a percentage that you have to get down to in order to collect uh it's it's kind of hard to understand the the you have to combine to get the crop insurance mm-hmm. in a sense that if you get really badly droughted out they don't out make you combine so if it's around 10 12 percent of your normal you don't have to combine as far as the crop insurance money goes to receive it mm-hmm. but what happens is you have to go combining if you have some crop left out there because you have to prepare for the next yeah. year. So you have a huge cost of combining and getting over the land just to kind of make it so you can get over the crop over the land the next spring. We we, we defined earlier in the conversation, Daryl, a dryland farmer. What, what what you do, you don't use the irrigation. Uh, right. to the extent of, of, of what the other farmers are. So, so in your situation, why not put in irrigation? Would that not help your cause? Well, yeah, it's, it, it would be wonderful, but on it, it's a topographical issue. Uh, you can't put irrigation water uh, uphill, no, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to be downhill from the system to be able to apply. Uh, then there's a whole... Thing about water rights and irrigation districts and it, it's quite complicated but you can't put irrigation hard you know everywhere yeah absolutely i can understand that for sure of, of course I, I think we love going to the the safeway and you know the sobeys the co-ops the superstore and getting our groceries but i mean maybe there's sometimes a disconnect between us city slickers who love the convenience and what you do for a living. And, and obviously there is a complete connection. So if, you, if your harvest is a bust, uh, what can we expect to see as consumers? What can we expect to see or, or not to see on grocery store shelves uh, coming up the next couple months? Um, well, in a nutshell, higher costs for consumers. Um, your grocery bill... Uh, what I do on the dryland farm isn't a lot of vegetables, for mm-hmm. example. That's that's irrigation. That's uh, uh, greenhouses, of course. Uh, different situation. My dryland farmer, I do cereal grains, mm-hmm. uh, cattle, of course, which is beef. But essentially, when you have a drought like this, it definitely affects the price. It takes quite a while to 
work its way through the system, but it's going to be higher costs on everything for sure. Yeah, I know it's not much much of a consolation, Daryl, but uh, you know, good luck with the harvest this year, and our, our thoughts go out to you during this tough time. Uh, thank you for your time this morning. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Daryl Lassiter, dryland farmer who does his craft in and around the Bassano area. If you look to Instagram, Facebook, or even Google for your news content, it's time to look elsewhere. Canada is fighting with Meta over Canadian news coverage. And other countries have had that fight, including Australia, but they did negotiate a deal. Uh, Why can't we? Or is this something that can be done in our nation with the tech giant? To discuss, we're joined by Michael Geist, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law from the University of Ottawa. Good morning to you, Michael. Oh, good morning. Well, we, we've discussed C-18. We discussed what was coming our way. We discussed, you know, uh, you know, and what we're seeing right now. We know what has happened, but Australia fought a similar battle against Meta and Google over news coverage. Uh, why were we not able to negotiate a similar deal, or is this something that we could be doing? Well, I think it's a different law, and I think it's more than just even a different law. It's a different time as well. So from a legal perspective, one of the biggest differences is that the Australian law actually gave the government kind of the flexibility to negotiate that. It was the government that would determine who the law would apply to. And so they used that kind of period to find a way to negotiate deals with those companies. And the government backed down a bit. The companies backed down a bit. And as you say, they they struck a deal, although the specifics of that are, are still not well known. Uh, since much of it isn't transparent. In Canada, the law already applies if they link to content to these two companies. It's, there, there isn't that kind of flexibility for the government. And so if Facebook or Meta links to news, the law applies to them, and there isn't really much room to negotiate on that kind of foundational issue, which is one reason why I think Meta has said, listen, the foundation of this, pro- of this law is mandated payments for links. We've said from day one, now, that's just a, a liability that, that we're not prepared to take on. And so if presented with that choice of linking or not, and then or pay or not, we're going to choose not to link. And, and they've, so as I say, been consistent, and it's precisely what they're doing. The numbers, as you mentioned, uh, Michael, we're not 100% clear on the deal that Australia was has struck with, with the tech giant Meta, but I, I've heard numbers such as $200 million a year, something of, of that nature. Uh, but regardless, how would you... Uh, put a price for a transaction like this? Is, is there some sort of a scale that, you know, we would look at if, if Meta was able to uh, strike a deal with Canadian broadcasters? That's an interesting question. I mean, I must say, at this stage, it does not appear that Meta is interested in negotiating at all. I mean, their position is that linking and the value of those links flows directly to the publishers, that the majority of the links that are posted two news articles on their platform are posted by the publishers themselves it drives traffic back to the publishers and the notion that they should have to pay for links that drive traffic back to publishers that clearly benefit the publishers that's why they're posting the links in the first place strikes them as as fundamentally unfair so at least from a public position i don't think that they're looking to negotiate and in fact you know we've had some suggest that this is all just a bluff but it's a pretty strange bluff if you're moving ahead with this and you're not talking to the government and you say you've got no reason to talk to the government at this stage because the laws already received royal assent and the fundamental concerns with those with that legislation isn't something that can be adequately addressed. So, so we can talk about Meta all day. We can talk about you know the Canadian broadcast industry 
and the impacts between these two two giants to to a large extent. But what about the Canadian public itself? Do we lose out on anything? Do we miss out on anything by not having uh, Canadian news and, and local stories by journalists in our social feeds? I think so. Well, I think everyone loses here. I, you know, I think that you know, even if so, even if news isn't a big part of social media feeds, uh, that Meta says about three percent of people's feeds, it's still obviously useful for some people, and so that represents a loss for the company and making a less valuable product to a certain extent, and certainly a loss for individuals. It's clearly a massive loss for Canadian media because they do say that this drives us, uh, for them an important portion of their traffic. It's not the most important referral source, but it is a very important one. So there's losses all around. And we've got a government that, you know, never took the risks of its legislation seriously. You know, for day one, there were concerns that if they premised their legislation on mandated payments for links, this was a likely possibility. And when presented with that concern, the heritage minister at the time, Pablo Rodriguez, really just shrugged his shoulders and said, well, you know what, they've got a business choice to make. Uh, you know, given that this legislation has really imperiled, especially some of the smaller digital first publications that are more reliant on social media, I think they frankly deserve better than a shrug. And, you know, the, I think the government should have been in a position to say, you know, this is the risk. We need to at least consider what some of the alternatives might be. Very interesting discussion, and I think, you know, if, uh, if you haven't noticed already, you know, some people are sporadic with their social media, maybe you'll be noticing in the next couple of days that you don't have those news stories uh, within the content streams anymore. So thank you for your time, Michael. We appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Michael, but, um, Michael Geist is Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law from the University of Ottawa.